0: Welcome to the Mere Catholicity Podcast, pursuing ecumenism through theological discussions and dialogues. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Mere Catholicity Podcast. I am your host, Jonah Saller. And for those who are new, um, this is a podcast where we discuss theology, ecumenism, and um, And really try to do so from a really charitable perspective with the various traditions within christianity If you'd like to know more you'd like to support the work that i'm doing please click the link below you'll find a link to locals where you can become a mere catholic we have a community of people growing on there that are from various traditions anglican roman catholic orthodox some even baptists on there i believe and we're all just trying to be mere catholics together and grow into that and so If that is of interest to you, I'd encourage you to click the link below and become a mere Catholic today. Today's episode, I have the pleasure of talking to Father Wesley Walker. Um, He's an Anglican priest or an Anglo-Catholic priest, um, and I'm just really, really glad and grateful for the opportunity to kind of dive into the world of Anglo-Catholicism a little bit more. Uh, And so, uh, Father Wesley, thank you so much for coming on. Would you mind just introducing yourself and giving a brief biography on who you are? Absolutely. Well, thank you so
1: much for having me. It's it's really wonderful to be with you and to get to talk about these topics. I think it'll be a fun conversation. I was born and raised in Raleigh, North Carolina, in an evangelical home. I went to Liberty University, both for undergrad and seminary, and I just finished my Master of Sacred Theology at Neshota House Theological Seminary in Wisconsin. Like I mentioned, I was raised evangelical. I went in high school through a phase that we would now probably call deconstruction, but at the time, I don't think it was really called that. I mean, it was certainly starting to happen. I remember, for example, Dave Bazan, the singer of Pedro the Lion, had kind of undergone a public deconversion, but it wasn't maybe quite as prominent as it is now. Um, I, when I, went, I came back to the faith, or, or rather, I should say I worked some things out and and more enthusiastically jumped in right around the time I was starting college. But after my freshman year or so began to to dive into historical Christianity, I was on the debate team there at Liberty. Good friend of mine on the team, who's one of the most well-read people I've ever met, told me you really need to read more church fathers. And so that summer I went to the used bookstore and found a copy of St. Athanasius on the Incarnation, which I had never read before, had never heard of St. Athanasius, but I knew who C.S. Lewis was, who wrote the foreword to the copy that I found. And once I read that, was really just convinced that this was very different from what I had been raised with. And, and I wanted to pursue that. And so we spent a few years looking at Catholicism and Orthodoxy and Anglicanism and where do we fit in, in this, in this landscape. And so by my senior year of college, we were confirmed, I believe, or we, we started attending the the Anglican church that we, we got confirmed in. And then I started seminary there at Liberty was ordained to the diaconate in 2016, was then ordained to the priesthood the summer of 2017. I was ordained in the Missionary Diocese of All Saints in the Anglican Church of North America, served in a parish in Lynchburg, Virginia, for a few years. But in 2019, we joined the Anglican Province of America, and we moved from southwest Virginia to right outside of Annapolis, Maryland, where I currently serve as the rector of St. Paul's Anglican Church in a town called Crownsville. It's about 10-15 minutes from Annapolis, So that's our story. Um, It's been kind of a winding road, but we're very, very happy where we are at. We love the Anglican province of America. I'm sure many of your listeners may have heard of our bishop, Bishop Chandler Holder Jones. He's pretty active on social media and is an awesome guy. And uh, so we really, we really appreciate being under his leadership. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's a, it's an interesting background. Not many people go to Liberty University and come out Anglican, but (laughs) there are a few of us.
0: Yeah. Well, very cool. Yeah, that that's it's strikes me as similar to my story, even though I didn't go to liberty. I'm I'm actually finishing a degree at Moody Bible Institute. Came from a non-denominational background, and so I kind of had the same thing. Was was struck by the church fathers, started to dig in, and the rest is history from there. So it's interesting. Um, exactly. Yeah. So yes. so let us let's, let's dig in a little bit to just like the idea of the Anglican continuum, the uh, Anglican Province mm. of America. Um, I think that these are sometimes overlooked like people think you know Episcopal Church, Church of England, ACNA and the continuum just kind of gets pushed to the side isn't really addressed isn't really talked about but it has played an important role in American Anglicanism and it's played an important role in the history um, considering that it is quite a bit older than the ACNA and things like that so uh, what was what was the appeal to you to move from the ACNA to the uh, to the continuum, and can you give just a brief background on the continuum and what what their theological distinctives are?
1: Sure. Yeah. The Anglican continuum refers to those churches that have left the Episcopal Church at one point or another due to doctrinal issues with what was going on in the church. Um, the, the APA, while not actually beginning technically in the 1970s, can can trace itself back to about 1977, as can a number of other continuing Anglican jurisdictions. Um, so when we say the continuum, we're talking about a kind of network or constellation of jurisdictions with varying degrees of churchmanship and, and even some individual opinions on, on doctrine. It, it should be said in 2017, the Anglican Catholic Church, the Anglican Province of America, the Anglican Church in America, and the Diocese of the Holy Cross all four of which can trace themselves back to the, the events of the 1970s, signed in an in intercommunion concordat. We jokingly call this confederation of churches, the well, at the time we called it the G4, and then if in the past year or so, the Diocese of the Holy Cross joined the Anglican Catholic Church as a non-geographical diocese within oh. the ACC, so we now call it the G3. Um, and so generally the continuum, the the, the name continuum comes from the Affirmation of St. Louis, which is a document that was signed by a number of those folks leaving the Episcopal Church. And we can talk more about that in a minute, exactly what it is. But the opening of the affirmation calls for the continuation of Anglicanism. In other words, where Mm. the Anglican Communion, more particularly the Episcopal Church and Anglican Church of Canada dropped the ball, these churches would push forward as Orthodox Anglicans. And so that's kind of where, where that title continuum comes from. Why that was persu- was was a persuasive option for us had to do with some of our theological convictions in terms of of being a little bit more on the Anglo-Catholic side um, and then on some other doctrinal issues. And, and and it's connected, at least in my mind, with the f- w- idea of women's ordination and, and those kind of issues uh, that came up. And so
0: that that is why the continuum became our home. Okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So let's get into the affirmation of St. Louis because it's it's kind of the 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 document that unites the mm-hmm. continuum. Um, what what is it? Uh, what was its purpose? Why was it drawn up? Um, what's what's its significance today?
1: Yeah. So it's really a short document. It's only about eleven pages long, and I think um, it's pretty easy to find on the internet. I think the Anglo Catholic Anglican Catholic Church has it on their website, but. It was the product of the Congress of St. Louis, which was a gathering of folks who were leaving the Episcopal Church in the 70s over prayer book revisions and women's ordination. Um, The group that was kind of formed before the split was called the Fellowship of Concerned Churchmen. The document begins, like I say, with that affirmation of a need to continue Anglicanism in the face of the fact that the Episcopal Church of the United States and the Anglican Church of Canada had departed from the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. It also argues for a need. To go forward with all faithful parts of the Anglican world, and actually, in the it, what might surprise listeners now is that in the affirmation, it calls for union with Canterbury, which of course, hmm. given events that happened, I think in the early 90s, um, where the Church of England kind of followed the Episcopal Church and Church of Canada, that that call has been kind of withdrawn. But uh, mm-hmm. it's inter- it is interesting that that is something that, um, that, that was expressed there. And actually, in the 90s, the, uh, the Lambeth Conference expressed an interest to dialogue with continuing Anglicans, but I don't think anything ever really came of that. So the, the affirmation basically begins by laying out our fundamental principles, ass- affirming that the church is the body of Christ, that we must adhere to the scriptures, to the creeds, Apostle Nicene and, and Athanasian that we have to adhere to the traditions of the undivided church, especially as defined by the seven ecumenical councils. It affirms that there are seven sacraments. It affirms the necessity of apostolic succession, and there are a few other things that it does, but those are kind of the big highlights. There are then some sections detailing the underlying principles of our moral teaching, affirming that we're pro-life, for example. Um, Hmm. There are some constitutional revisions, which have more to do with day-to-day church polity, church structure type issues. There are principles of worship, and then there are principles of action for moving forward. What kind of goals do we have? So basically, I would say the affirmation of St. Louis as a document forms a kind of lens for us to interpret our Anglican heritage, and it carves out a path for us moving forward as far as where we want our churches to go. And so um, certainly for those listeners who may be a little bit familiar with the continuum, you know, there the first 40 years of it was a bit tumultuous. There were a lot of personalities. Sure. There was a lot of splitting and, you know, The sad thing was these are people splitting who actually agree on a good deal of of things, but it was a lot of times personality or politically driven. I think that the events of 2017 in Atlanta with the signing of that intercommunion concordat really changed the direction and tenor. I mean, we still have our divisions. We're still not one church you know, the Anglican Catholic Church is still technically separate from the Anglican province of America. At the same time, it's a step in the right direction. We can share clergy. Um, you know, when parishioners travel, we can say, hey, there's not an APA church there, but there is an ACC church. So you can you can try going mm, there. Mm-hmm. So that kind of thing is 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 positive. And, and hopefully moving forward, there will be an increasing and organic unity between those those churches. So it's an exciting time to be in the continuum, actually. And, and you even hear this from some of the clergy when we're at clergy conferences, they'll say things like in the nineties, we really thought this was going to die. And then we look around Mm. at clergy conference and there are all these young priests and it's really exciting. So, um, I, I, I wouldn't rather be anywhere else.
0: Very cool. Yeah, that's, that's really, that's really neat. And that's a, that's a cool history too, to see how something that was drawn up at that point can kind of become a unifying document for, um, all the various continuum churches. Now, this is not in the questions that I sent over to you, but is the, is the Reformed Episcopal Church in communion with uh, the Anglican province of America? Um, there is an agreement between the two
1: churches, and I know our pension funds are the same, but I'm not exactly sure what the nature of the relationship is at this moment in time. Okay. I know that I, okay. I, I know those kind of things can be complicated and it's above my pay grade. I know I have sure, a lot of friends in sure. REC who I highly respect and, and think very fondly of. So, um, but I don't know exactly what the details would be like. I don't know if uh, an REC job came up, if I would be able to apply for it and you know, all that kind sure. of, all the, that nitty gritty, that would be something I'd have to do in conjunction with my Bishop, I think. So I don't know. I, yeah. I um, Yeah. Maybe maybe someday you okay. could get Bishop Chad on and he could answer that question for you.
0: Yeah, 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 that would be fun. Um, okay, so the, a big question that that I see all the time, and I'm frequently asked since I do lean more the Anglo-Catholic direction myself, um, is okay, what are the distinctives of Anglo-Catholicism? Mm-hmm. Like if you if you're not Saying that the thirty-nine articles, the Book of Homilies, and these things are the end-all, be-all to define what Anglicanism is, then why not just be Roman? Why not just mm. be Orthodox? What makes you distinctly Anglican? And so, from an Anglo-Catholic perspective, how would you how would you answer that question?
1: Well, I think so. In in America, the term Anglo-Catholic can be pretty semantically flexible. I mean, I've seen people identify sure. as Anglo-Catholic who don't. I I don't recognize much by way of Anglo-Catholic in them. (laughs) But I think it covers a range, at least for us in America, of of theological and liturgical expressions that I would categorize as a spectrum from high church to Anglo-Papalism. In general, Hmm. I would say that Anglo-Catholicism is that which is congruent with the Anglo-Catholic Congress movement, which was really flourished in the early 20th century, though it was rooted in what came before it the Caroline Divines, the Tractarians, the Ritualists, without them, there would be no Anglo-Catholic Congress movement. So I kind of liken it to like how the Mayflower Compact is really important. Like if you take an American history class or an American government class, Mm -hmm. you might read the Mayflower Compact and study what happened there at Plymouth. But that's not the Constitution. You know, it's a different thing. But without the one, you don't have the other. And I think it's very similar here that that Anglo Catholicism is the fruit of a kind of broader movement within the Anglican church, or or maybe I should say a broader impulse that evolved over time um, due to situations sure. and and due to dialogues and all those kind of things. Typically, I think you can label someone as an Anglo-Catholic if they're okay with or encourage things like substantial change in the Eucharist, the sacrifice of the Mass, calling it Mass, Benediction at Adoration of the Eucharist, auricular confession invocation of the saints, and then liturgically the use of the Anglican Missal or related liturgical documents. I think, um, you know, you ask, well, what what, what makes you distinctively Anglican? You know, I mean, we do inherit the prayer book tradition. We supplement the prayer book tradition. We bring it in line with the larger Western liturgical Mm. heritage that we have as English or Christians who descend from the English expression of the church. But, you know, I mean, like, I use the missile and the canon that I use is the 1928 prayer book canon, you know, sure. Um, When I do morning and evening prayer, I use the Anglican office book, which is the office from the 1928 prayer book supplemented again, like the missile with, with things that bring it in line with the larger Western tradition. In other words, Mm. I think an Anglo Catholic is someone who wants to honor the heritage of English Catholicism. And so we do that recognizing that it has changed over time, that there are different expressions of it. I mean, even within what we typically call Anglican history, you have the you have the church under Henry, you have the church under Edward, you have the church under Mary, you have the church under Elizabeth. You know, so, I mean, there's lots of changes that were occurring. And so um, I think we would just say, you know, there's not necessarily one canonical century of what makes Anglicanism Anglicanism, um, that, that it's kind of this broader deposit. That we inherit. And so we, we do that in a distinctively Catholic way. There are a couple good books on the topic that I would recommend to people that I think help carve out a specific identity a little bit more for Anglo-Catholics, or at least to understand Anglo-Catholicism, especially in light of the, the Congress movements. The first would be Lift High the Cross by John Gunstone, which is a great book. Okay. Um, the Catholic Movement and the Church of England by Wilfred Knox which is an old book, I actually, I bought on a books, a copy of that and it's signed by, well, it's signed and it just says by the author. Um, but I assume oh, wow. that's Wilfred Knox's signature, which yeah, is pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And then, um, and then finally the book, The R- the Rivers of the Flood by Dom Anselm Hughes, who it, that's more of almost a memoir of what was going on, but it's very interesting. So that that's kind of how I would carve out the Anglo-Catholic uh, identity that we we do receive the, the Anglican heritage that is, that recognizes it's part of a larger English Catholic tradition.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's good. And, um, it seems to also rightly deal with the, the complaint that Anglo Catholics are historical revisionists. Correct. Because that, that kind of argument assumes a static nature to the Anglican tradition as opposed to an organic development and growth into a, a fuller, catholicity so to speak um, there's a kind of anglo catholicism
1: that does it kind of imports 20th 21st century or 20th 19th and 20th century thinking onto like the english reformers for example and i just i don't i don't think that cranmer had a, an anglo catholic agenda even though he may have retained certain features of the church that we now think of as more Catholic-like apostolic succession and bishops. But even then, if you read his justification for that, it's very different than what our reasoning for bishops would be. So we don't want to import on that time period a kind of Anglo-Catholic revisionism. We should understand that the Church of England at the time was attempting to become more in line with the continental reformers. But that doesn't mean that we're, I don't think that means we're locked into that approach either. We're not right. like Lutherans or Calvinists, and that we we're not Cranmerians. You know, I mean, you can be a Cranmerian Anglican. That's fine if that's what you how you want to work out your Anglicanism with fear and trembling, but that I don't think that's the only way to be Anglican.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, and I I think that's the best response because I I think the 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 accusation of historical revisionism holds when you try to rewrite all of the reformers as being anglo-catholic but if we just take them right. for what they are and say just because cranmer was more reformed does not invalidate this particular expression of anglicanism it it, it deals rightly with the history and also you know provides a good justification for the the catholicity of of anglican and its various expressions um what do you what do you as an Anglo Catholic say to those who would place the Thirty Nine Articles as being kind of the essential doctrine for for Anglicanism? Um, hmm. What is the role of the Thirty Nine Articles in in an Anglo Catholic perspective?
1: Well, it it will depend, I think, on the Anglo Catholic, but I will say that. <sighs> There are Anglican churches in which the or jurisdictions in which the 39 articles do hold a kind of authority where they are the determining marker of what's in and what's out. And in those jurisdictions, that is just simply the way it is. I mean, it's a descriptive reality, right? In our continuing affirmation of St. Louis context, We don't really, so like, for example, the affirmation of St. Louis does not at any point mention the 39 articles specifically. However, the affirmation does say that we affirm all Anglican statements of faith and liturgical formulae in light of the scriptures, creeds, and traditions of the church, as set forth by Mm -hmm. the ancient Catholic bishops and doctors, and especially as defined by the seven ecumenical councils of the undivided church. So do the articles have authority? Well, insofar as they conform to the, to that deposit of faith, when we do engage with the articles, I would say that we may, might mirror or draw from Newman's project in track 90. So how do we understand these in a way which accords with the seven councils? Like, and I mean, an example, article 22 is always a flashpoint, you know, our images, relics and invocations thing, uh, invocation of saints, things that are fondly fond things vainly invented, right is what the the articles say. And I think from our right. perspective, we would say that's only really true of a very certain kind of excess and abuse that may have been happening in some places, but not of those things per se. So I think the sure. difference would be that for some Anglicans, and again, this is this is because of their jurisdictional DNA, the articles are a are a doctrine that subordinates other teachings. For us, the 39 articles are a subordinate document, not a subordinating document.
0: Right, right. That makes sense. So how do you, going back to kind of your your, uh, bio on how you became Anglican in the first place, you said you kind of explored Anglicanism, but Catholicism and Orthodoxy as well. Why did you determine Anglicanism as opposed to Catholicism and Orthodoxy? there
1: are um i think a, f- a few reasons and some of them may be better than others i mean i think one of them is is simply liturgical uh in that we were at a very anglo-catholic anglican church and were exposed to i think a very beautiful liturgy it was novus ordo but it was mm-hmm. well done novus ordo which i'm okay with. i mean i think well the novus ordo is is quite beautiful but then you'd go to the Roman church and I would just be totally underwhelmed by the, by the liturgy there and continue to be in a lot of places. So that's part of it. You know, some of the claims about, about the Roman Catholic church and the papacy, I'm not fully comfortable with. I certainly respect the Bishop of Rome and all that. And, you know, pray for, pray for him regularly, but I, I just can't quite get there on a few of those things. So That was it. And, and, you know, finally, I mean, I think I was just convinced of the case that Anglicans have valid orders. So even if I do, Um, uh, you know, even if I buy certain Roman Catholic claims at the end of the day, I'm in a valid church with valid orders. And I, I don't think that statement is really as controversial as it would have been, you know, 200 years ago. So anyway, so that's, that's one of the reasons why. And I think you, know, you read someone like Martin Thornton and and his stuff on English spirituality and, and the kind of English pastoral tradition. And I do think there's a lot there that's beautiful and worth preserving. You know, the, this this very pastoral relationship between priest and parishioner, I think, is, is beautiful. And so all that I think is worth fighting for. The liturgy is beautiful. The, the orders are valid. We are an expression of the church, Catholic Church. And the fact that we have this pastoral bent to us, I, th- I think is, is good and helpful. Hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Good, good, good. What, what would you say an Anglo-Catholic appraisal of the, of the Reformation is? Because um, obviously there's an acknowledgement that, you know, this heritage that Anglicans have, even Anglo-Catholics, comes from this break with Rome and the liturgical traditions that came through that. Um, but obviously, Anglo Catholics would part ways with the reformers on uh, numerous points of doctrine, and so in general, what what is an Anglo Catholic appraisal of, of the Reformation?
1: Interestingly, uh, too, I think it's important to point out that you know Cranmer's what I think Cranmer's most positive contribution is is the is the daily office and the prayer book, right? This idea mm-hmm. of of every Christian home being in some ways a miniature monastery you know the laity as as monk in a way or at least able to participate in monkhood in some way but i also would point out that that's not unique to cramer that cramer actually drew from the spanish church the spanish roman catholic church who were doing something called cathedral prayers and they were making that available to laity morning and evening, they, hmm. they consolidated the, the seven hours, the, the monastic hours for lay, lay folks. And I think that that, so I, I appreciate the genius and I appreciate the the degree to which he popularized that approach. And I think it's a really beautiful approach. I, in fact, I think that's the most beneficial aspect of the Book of Common Prayer is the way in which it is not just a book of services, but it's a kind of ascetical system that 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 a lay person can use. Now, I don't I'm not crazy about the the way in which monastic life was deconstructed in that time, you know, through the, the, the yeah. plundering of the monasteries. And I understand there's a whole host of political and moral concerns that go on th- with that. And I don't think we need to relitigate all that. It's just I think there's something um, there's something to. The idea of Monkhood of All Believers, like Greg Peter's book is called, you know, and I think that uh, I think that, mm-hmm. that Kramer does a good job of that. Now, as far as my appraisal of the Reformation in general, I think that it, most Anglo Catholics will have a fairly negative view of the Reformation. Um, you know, personally, I have a, a bit of a soft spot for Martin Luther. I disagree with him on a number <laughs> of things, but I I still kind of like him. <laughs> I can't help it <laughs> even <laughs> when I don't like him. I find him to be pretty funny. Um yeah. <laughs> that said, I don't think that there's much common ground with Reformed theology. Um, you know, I think the, the kind of distinction between nature and grace that you find in, in a lot of Protestantism is not great. The sacramentology yeah. that you find in Reformed theology, to me, is less than satisfactory. Uh, so, and I think that it left the church poorer as the church. You know, I mean, you, you, you have more violence to the kind of visible... Unity of the church, and so I, I'm not, I'm not crazy about it. I, I don't know if there's a specific area of the Reformation that you want to focus on with that, but just in general, it's, it's kind of a, a, a negative view. Understanding, of course, there are a bun- a million historical contingencies and complexities that that go into the Reformation, and not everyone in the Reformation was a bad actor. They were doing what they really thought was best, and all that. So I, I certainly understand why. I just You know, it's one of those things. Like if I had a time machine, you know, we could we could go back and fix things, you know. But alas, we can't.
0: Yeah. So so maybe just kind of focusing in just a bit more specifically to the English Reformation itself. in general, what is in what is an Anglo-Catholic view of the of the English Reformation, and we can we can kind of leave King King Henry to the side right. when discussing that, but just in terms of the the doctrinal and uh, theological um, move of that,
1: yeah. I again, I think it's one of those things where it's it's an incredibly complex situation. You have yes, some doctrinal stuff going on in terms of. Uh, you know, what is, what is the Pope's authority, um, which of course does express itself in the Henry trial about whether the annulment could be granted or not. And you do see a kind of, again, a political more, really more of a political justification for denying the, the annulment than a theological one. I mean, it was covered in theological language, but Henry was Henry, what Henry was asking for was not unprecedented at all. So that, that raises a number of problems. And I think, I think really, at the heart of the English reformation is is tensions that have been working themselves out over over the past few centuries coming to a head. Um you know, you have a foreign, a foreign bishop, but really a political authority in the Pope who wants to control what the English people are doing. And so the English people, don't really love that. And so there's this kind of, and this actually, by the way, is where a lot of that mythology or mythos comes from where, and, and Anglo Catholics do it more now, but back in the day, this was a really reform talking point that there was a church in England prior to Augustine of Canterbury arriving in England. That was hmm. actually a reformational English point that was drawn out. And then it got more adopted by Anglo Catholics later on, but they really emphasize this idea of, sure. of a kind of national church. You know, well, we've always been here, Um, And so I think that was a lot of it. Now, again, I think, uh, you know, I uh, parts of the prayer book have to be interpreted like the affirmation of St. Louis encourages us to do, which is through the teaching of the undivided church. Um, And so that might mean departing from what Cranmer intended himself. And I'm okay with that. So I, I can certainly appreciate what they were trying to do while also saying. There are some things in which we just can't, we we shouldn't necessarily be fighting that battle anymore, I guess.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. So let's get into some of those, those, uh, specific doctrines. So Mm. let's, let's take some time and talk about the sacraments. One of the reformation, uh, cries was that there's only two sacraments, the two sacraments instituted by Christ, Lord's supper and baptism. Um, obviously those are sacraments that are, um, Honored as kind of the chief sacraments, I would say. Uh, but in the Anglo-Catholic world, you have you have seven sacraments. So, um, why why seven? Is that simply because of the Western tradition, or is there specific reasons for that 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 go beyond that?
1: Yeah, so definitely, we do interpret the sacramental system through what we received as western christians in which case yes seven i think it's important because when you see how the how the diminishing of the five commonly called sacraments mm-hmm. has led to some really problematic things in my opinion so for example ordination not yeah. being a sacrament you know, if you read, for example, the ACNA task force on this question, the idea of it not being a sacrament is used to then justify certain innovations. Um, I've seen, I mean, I think you can make the same argument about marriage, you know, if marriage isn't a sacrament, then the revision of marriage can, is certainly easier to do. Now, of course there are conservative reformed Anglicans who would hate to revise either of those things um, and they wouldn't call them sacraments, but I think it's certainly easier to, And, you know, I think, I mean, another area where this comes up is, is auricular confession. If you, if you say that's not a sacrament, then you can get away with the kind of sloppy line, you know, well, all can, some should, none have to, which I absolutely drives me bonkers when people say that I I told my, I I led a retreat this past weekend at my church. And I said, uh, I said, you know, some people say that, but, you know, come ask me sometime if I think you should go to confession. Um, And I'll say, yes, I don't care who you are. (laughs) so anyway so I don't I don't that's such a oh go ahead
0: I was just gonna say that's such a it's such a strange phrase to use as though there's a human being on the planet that doesn't need to confess sin you know (laughs) yeah 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 no it's 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 very strange
1: it's very strange um so there's that and I think on the flip side of this is the idea that these are visible means of invisible grace, right? And so there's an assurance aspect of that. Right. So the same thing is true of, of confession, right? I mean, we've, uh, you're, you were raised evangelical, so you get it. I mean, you probably had friends baptized three or four times like I did, and you had, you had friends who yep. would, you know, they would have some besetting sin. And as soon as they did it again, they would wonder if they're really a Christian or not because they did this thing, you know, And so there's not really a way to work out that. So you end up getting a lot of guilt without any grace, uh, at least not visible grace. And and so you kind of think, well, I have to work myself up into right. some sort of emotional response or something. And not that emotional responses are bad. I mean, the, the medieval church taught, you know, that tears are really important in uh, in contrition and, and all that. But in terms of the sacraments, I think there is this idea of assurance that's really important. And if you read the absolution, at least in the 28 prayer book, you know, there isn't assurance, not in the corporate confession, right? he, he pardoneth and absolveth all those who with hearty repentance and true faith turn unto him. Well, how do you know that you had hearty repentance and true faith? Whereas when you come to confession and the priest says, I absolve you of your sins in the name of the father, the son, and the Holy ghost, well, there's an assurance, right? And so, yeah. So I think that the, that the idea that the sacraments are, that there are seven of these sacraments and that, that, that they are the official means by which grace is imparted to the Christian, I I think that makes the most sense. I I think pastorally it's the most helpful and that way it's, it's harder to fudge some of those sacraments.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That definitely makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about specifically baptism and the Eucharist. (laughs) These are kind of the two that um, probably have the most divergent theology um, in terms of the reformation, a lot of disagreement about what, what both of these sacraments do. What is the the Anglo-Catholic view of the Eucharist and and the real presence of Christ uh, in the Eucharist?
1: I think the best way that we would say it. I mean, you know, the term like real presence, for example, is a is a good start. But a lot of people can say they believe in the real presence, and then when you get down to it, we uh, kind of disagree on what that means. I think the quest the the point we would make is that Jesus is pre- is substantially present in the Eucharist. That that he is that the that there is a kind of transformation that occurs. Where when the priest holds up the chalice and the and the bread and says, behold, the Lamb of God, you know, we take that moment and we adore him present. Um, If he's not substantially there, if that is still bread and wine, or if the bread and wine is somehow co-mingled with the body and blood so that we get this sort of tertium quid bread Jesus, then that's idolatry which poses a problem. So, so I think for an Anglo Catholic typically, and, and I should say this too, by the way, if you go to one of our parishes, you will find people with different opinions on these things. It's not like, at least in a good number of our parishes. So it's not like what I'm saying, I'm speaking for every single person who even attends my own parish, but this is my understanding of, of it as someone who is consciously Anglo-Catholic about these things. So yes, uh, Jesus is present in the Eucharist. Um, I mean, I think John six is really, really important in terms of understanding that. I think that's John's Eucharistic discourse. Um, you have to eat my blood and drink my, or you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that that's a, that's a good uh, distinction to make. Um, Cause I think that, the word real presence, like you said, a Calvinist could use mm-hmm. the word real presence, and yet what they mean by it is very different than what you know a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or Anglo-Catholic might mean. And so and, getting at least to that idea of substantial um, is probably a helpful way to, to understand.
1: And I think one other thing that separates us from the more Reformed either Anglicans or just the Reformed tradition in general is that we do believe that the Mass— And we call it the mass is a sacrifice that, that, that the body and blood are represented to us that, that, um, T.S. Eliot calls the Calvary, the timeless moment that, that we're brought to it. It's brought to us. So there is that ascent aspect of, of, you know, that you get kind of emphasized in the, in the Calvinist doctrines of the Eucharist, but that ascent is only possible because of the descent of the sacrifice. And so we're brought up into heavenly right. worship through participation in the cross. So that's, that's, yeah. I think, yeah, that difference. idea of
0: sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. That idea of sacrifice makes a lot of, a lot of sense when you kind of have, I just finished a couple of Hans Borsma's books where he, he goes over the idea of like sacramental time and the participation in that. And when you start to just recognize that if Christ is like the center of history and all things are have their yes and amen in him, then the once for all sacrifice of Calvary is a eternal now, <laughs> if you will, that we enter into every and every this mass. is what I so, think. Yeah. Uh, well, a couple things, because like, I think
1: when you're in when you're reading the scriptures and it says that Jesus is mediating or that he's interceding for us, like, what does that mean? And it doesn't, I don't think, mean that he's just mm. sitting there praying, you know, and help uh, Father Wesley not mess up too bad on this podcast or, you know, things like that. I mean, there is, a, I think, a pleading that's going (laughs) on, but it's a pleading by presenting the cross to the father. So there's the sense in which the cross happened in time and space in history. There's another sense in which the cross is always happening in the heavenly room in the son's presentation to the father. Now, of course, that also means the resurrection is always happening, right. right? So it's not like, you know, you hear the Protestant critique of like, well, my Jesus isn't still on the cross. And it's like, well, he sort of still is, but that doesn't mean he didn't win. <laughs> um, it just means that this offering is right. an eternal right. act of worship uh, from the son to the father, you know, and we're invited up into that.
0: Right, right. Yeah, and you you even see that uh, that kind of imagery when John sees the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, you know, uh, that, that kind of idea draws out the idea that that you're not dealing with a, a strictly temporal moment. Right. You're dealing with an eternal reality. And I should
1: say too, yeah. the separation of the body and the blood, the fact that we have them as two separate things is highly sacrificial in nature. Maskell makes this point in right. Christ, the Christian, and the church, yeah. that it was a, it was a common practice ritually that the sacrifice would be killed and its blood and its body separated. So like the blood is sprinkled in the, in the, in the sanctuary and then the meat is offered, you know, so there is this separation that occurs between Hmm. body and blood and that, that is highly sacrificial.
0: Yeah. Very cool. So on the, in terms of the sacrament of baptism, what is the Anglo Catholic view? Would they hold to a, baptismal regeneration? And if so, what does that mean? Yeah. So baptismal
1: regeneration, we, we certainly would adhere to that. The prayer book affirms it, at least the 1928 prayer book. I think the 1662 does yep. too. And I also think the 2019 uh, affirms baptismal regeneration. So the idea yeah. being that you are dead in sin, that, that we are born with a lack in our nature, built into our nature. Our nature is good, but it's corrupted by the fall. And, um, that expresses itself primarily through ignorance and concupiscence. And the, and so when we're baptized, it's the beginning of the healing of our nature. We're given a new life. We're made regenerate, um, which is what the prayer book says. We are, all of our sins are forgiven. And so, um, it's the beginning of a new, of a new life for the person who's baptized. I'm excited the Sunday I get to baptize a baby and I will you know, at, at oh. one point we will, you know, that baby is a, is a, I, well, I love the, I love the picture of, of, of baby baptism because, you know, the baby didn't choose to get, to go to the, the font. In fact, they'll probably be crying, but mm. you know, that's <laughs> the beauty of it. Um, that they're that this baby will be given faith and hope and love, um, in, in that moment. And, and mm. hopefully we'll pray that over the course of his life,
0: those things will grow and grow and grow in him. Yeah. Amen. That's very exciting. That's really cool. So the Reformation really prioritized soteriology Mm -hmm. as one of the main, um, objections to Roman Catholicism, specifically the idea of sola fide, uh, justification by faith alone. Um, and the, the articulation kind of throughout the, the, history of the Reformation became very much a forensic declaration that God gives where the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the believer. And over against this, you have the Roman Catholic view and I would argue the Orthodox that want to emphasize a transformative kind of, um, reality that takes place within justification where the sinner is not simply declared righteous, but is made righteous by, by Christ. And it's not two separate things. Um, What is the Anglo-Catholic? Where do they fall on the issue of of justification and soteriology when it comes to uh, sola fide?
1: Yeah. So, um, because we believe in baptismal regeneration, so I I guess I would go back further. I would say that original sin means we're born with a lack of something, right? Um, That Mm. our nature is warped, that it's sick, that it's distorted, and that wounded nature means that we have these dual. Uh, problems of ignorance and concupiscence, and together those things push us away from God. Um, baptism infuses us, infuses in us the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. So faith is never really alone. We're given that faith in baptism, right? Through sacramental participation, namely the Eucharist and confession. I mean, this is post-baptism uh, through lives of piety, prayer, devotion, and through participation and cooperation with God through good works, works of mercy. Um, we grow in, in those theological virtues and Lord willing, we eventually reach our end, which is the beatific vision. Um, I did my thesis at Neshota House on a, on a theologian named Hugh St. Victor, who categorizes the three stages of human life in that at creation, we were created with being, with essay. That sin corrupted us Mm -hmm. so that we kind of are moving away from God towards non-essay, non-being. But that what we were actually created for is pulchrum essay, beautiful being. And so there's this idea that that the change that's happening needs to be real and in the person. And so I think the best thing we can say about something like imputation, sola fide type approaches is what Maskell says in on Christ, the Christian and the church, which is what God imputes, he imparts. So there is a declaration Mm. um, at baptism. This child is now regenerate, is pronounced to the whole church. And so then there is a kind of working of the Holy Spirit in the child's life so that they become who they are. Uh, it's that double polarity that Lionel sure. Spencer Thornton talks about in The Common Life of the Body of Christ. That on the one hand, there is this, there's this great gift. There's this beautiful change that's occurred. On the other hand, it's only happened in germ. It's it's a seed that then has to grow. And so um Right. So I guess I, I guess we see salvation as a process, as a dimmer switch more than an on-off switch. It's not just an event. It, it's connected to an event, right? It's that it's that old saying, I, I was saved, I am being saved, I will be saved, you know, the, all three of those things are true. Right. Um, The beauty of baptism, I think, is that it's a constant reminder to a person that they are a Christian. They might be a bad Christian, they might mm. be a Christian who, you know, whether they'll make it to heaven or not is in question, but they're still a Christian. And at any point, the sacramental system is there for them. You know, all they have to do is just go to confession. Sure. And in doing that, you know, there's, there's a a great grace. And so I think that's, that's where we are. What what I like about this, by the way, is that I think it's a very humanizing, I'm sort of a humanist, I mean, in a Christian sense, you know, um, I'm, I am classically educated. I am a classical educator, you know, so I, I love this idea that when we are saved, when we become a member of Christ's body, we're not it's not mechanical obedience. It's not a kind of legal fiction. It's a real change where you are, you are becoming what you were made to be. And I think that that's a much more compelling picture of, of what salvation is than a kind of legal declaration, which of course has a place. And of course, Paul uses metaphors and imagery. He uses a lot of metaphors and imagery to describe salvation. It's a multifaceted thing, but,
0: but I wouldn't want to lose sight of that. Big picture. Right. Right. Yeah, I've I've often spoken of, and you can tell me what you think of this, but I've I've often spoken of justification as being the eschatological declaration of God that's given to us at judgment day, brought to the present, given to us predicated on the work of the spirit that transforms us and conforms us to that declaration so that on judgment day, when we stand before the throne, we are what God has Mm. called us to be through the power of the spirit. And my, my critique of the Protestant notion is I just think it's insufficiently Trinitarian. If the father declares us righteous on the basis of the son, but the Holy Spirit doesn't transform us to become what we are declared to be, as, as joined in that same reality of justification, then it seems to me to be insufficiently Trinitarian. And so that, that's that kind of that transformative, uh, idea I think is essential to really taking and recognizing the Trinitarian Mm -hmm. nature of, of justification. Yeah. Um, I
1: think, I think the way I've been thinking about it more lately is that idea of that spectrum where you have non-being and beautiful being on both ends. And, something like baptism or justification yeah. or whatever it is you want to call that. I mean, for us, it's the same thing, baptism and justification, but I know not all Christian traditions yeah. would say that, is it's the turning, right? So it's like you're headed towards non-being, and then in the, the moment of your baptism is when you turn. That does not necessarily mean that that there will be a purely linear progression to the end, to beautiful being. For most of us, it's kind of a zigzag back and forth. You know, I, I two steps forward, a couple steps back, you know constant back and forth yeah. and that's the struggle of it but that's a really important struggle and you know what mm-hmm. that means for mm-hmm. each person is above our pay grade to to make any kind of final judgment but um hopefully we we participate with the, the grace that we are given and and have the opportunity to receive
0: sure yeah well maybe on that note too this this again this isn't in the questions but I feel like it's important to kind of touch on um, when it comes to sin and falling away from the faith or forfeiting salvation, would an Anglo-Catholic hold to the the kind of Roman-Catholic distinction between mortal-venial sin, or would they be a little bit more um, orthodox in their approach where sin is a movement away from God that leads to forfeit and you know righteousness is the movement yeah, the other way? Yeah,
1: I think we, we would probably side a little more with the Roman view on that. We, we did an episode of the Sacramentalist, a short episode on on mortal and venial sin. And I think, again, these are really humanizing doctrines. And I know the way that the West is typically characterized is almost a, in a sort of legal mindset as if it's it's overly legalistic and the Orthodox are the sort of mysterious ones who, you know, um, uh, kind of leave room sure. for there to be some uh, humanity. Uh, and 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 that can be true. Absolutely. I'm not saying that's always wrong or unfounded. But I do think that a doctrine like mortal and venial sin, a distinction between those two things can be, again, a really humanizing thing. And I think experientially, again, we we pick up on this. So there are some things that we might do. You know, uh, this morning I, I was pulling onto the highway in front of my house and I was turning my car wheel and I had the turn signal on. And like as I was turning, it turned the turn signal off. And the problem was there was a car like a couple, like ahead of me and they were trying to pull on. And so I'm like switching lanes and the the turn signal went off. So it was like, and and, you know, I mean, that was not great. I probably could have driven in a more considerate way for the other person. I don't know that it was uh, a mortal sin, you know, I'm in fact, I'm pretty sure it wasn't because I didn't mean to, right. So there's not an intentionality there. Um, So it's unfortunate the person beeped at me, you know, and it's like, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to, um, When we have the category mortal and venial, it allows us uh, to avoid, I think, the problem of scrupulosity, right? Because not every little thing is deadening in the same way. And we know there are degrees of sin. I think most people would agree with that to some in some way. Not all sin is equal in the sense that it affects the soul the same way. All sin is equal in the sense that it compounds a debt we can't repay that's what anselm argues in curdays homo right you could have even the smallest sin compounds this debt so that it's unpayable because we already owe god everything so if if it's everything plus 0. 0.0001 it's unpayable but but right. sin really deaden can can deaden the soul and so i think experientially we've all been there you know i mean when you when you do something and you beforehand know i shouldn't do that but i want to do it anyways and it's something really serious, a serious issue, there's something about that where you enter this phase of spiritual uh, dryness, deadness, you know, it's that dull throbbing, you know, that you, you experience. And, and, and so the beauty of it is, Hey, yes, that was bad, but you're not too far gone. And so this is why constant confession and, and self-examination is really important. Regular confession is really important. So, yeah. So I do think yeah. that that the categories of mortal and venial, and, and of course, biblically, right? St. John tells us some sin leads to death. Right. So what does that mean? He, of course, doesn't flesh that out as much as we'd like it to. It'd have been nicer if he had given us just a, a, a <laughs> list of, of what exactly that is. But I think experience, right. I think experience supports that, um, and of course, I mean, right. anytime there's right. a question, I mean, Hey, just take care of it with your confessor, tell them, and maybe they'll say, Hey, that's really not the right. big a deal. Right. And that's, that's great. That's good to hear, but you should be very hard on yourself. I think in that self-examination
0: process. Yeah. Yeah, definitely agreed. Yeah. Um, let, let's transition now to kind of the, the last subject that I had. And that's, that's really the question of, of authority hmm. within Anglo-Catholicism, um, What is the Anglo-Catholic perspective on, say, Sola Scriptura? We can start there. I am still, I have investigated the issue of Sola Scriptura.
1: I've read books on the topic. I've read the Reformers on the topic. And I'm still not really sure there's a, a great agreement or articulation of what Sola Scriptura is. People will use it often. And I think that depending on the tradition in which you inhabit, you it means something different for different people. In general, my understanding is that the scriptures should norm the traditions of the church, or something like that. That that the scriptures have yeah. the kind of highest role of authority. Uh, in theory, I'm not opposed to this uh, per se. I mean, I, I I think the question is how do we interpret and understand the scriptures. <clears throat> How do we get the scriptures? Um, so, I mean, the canonization process, this came up on Twitter recently, actually, the the whole conversation of, well, the church didn't uh, mm-hmm. create the canon. It discovered the canon through being led by the Holy Spirit. And of course, I think to some degree that's true. Um, so the scriptures are very important and, and we need to, to trust them as the word of God. God speaks to us through the scriptures. He also speaks to us through the church. Um, I have, I, I like to say ecclesiology is pneumatology and pneumatology is ecclesiology. And so there's a sense in which if we believe the scriptures are divinely inspired, I think we also believe that the church in some way is divinely inspired. And so when the church speaks, especially through the councils, you know, that that is a kind of equal authority, not because the church is so special, but because the church is led by the spirit. And so when we say things like the creed, I mean, I think the creed is incredibly important for understanding the scriptures and that interpretations of the scriptures which violate the creed should be negated, canceled, whatever, not canceled, but you know what I mean. And so, so yes, so the scriptures play a really important role in our lives and we should all read them. I mean, you talked about Dr. Borsma um, earlier, his stuff on the scriptures is fantastic and we should all read more of that. His new book, "Pierced by Love is really excellent. The scriptures are are the way in which one of the ways in which we encounter God. Um, and so it's really important. But we yeah. also need the creeds and we need the councils and we need the liturgy of our church and all that in order to understand the scriptures, because the scriptures are the church's book.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think too many people approach the idea of scripture and tradition as two totally separate sources right. of authority, as opposed to both, both flowing from the same source, which is, which is Christ himself. And, oh, Um, and I would, would I would just add to that, that the scriptures
1: are a tradition of the church, right? I mean, the people who wrote the scriptures are bishops, priests, deacons, apostles, you know, so there is no, there is no separation there. I mean, I think it's an artificial distinction to say traditions over here, scriptures over here. Well, no, scripture is a tradition of the church.
0: Right, right. Yeah, totally agreed. What would you say to, to those, This I specifically hear this coming from more the Roman Catholic Orthodox side, but there's an argument that, okay, Anglo-Catholics have a high view of the church, but they allow for the fact that the church is broken up into these different branches, mm-hmm. and a visible institutional unity is a necessary mark of the true church and since anglo-catholics don't seem to have that because they acknowledge branches of the church they invalidate themselves as being part of or being the true church um what, what would your response be to that idea of this this necessity of visible institutional well, i don't unity? think anybody believes that really i mean the roman catholic church will
1: uh, recognize churches not in full communion with them as as technically valid parts of the church. They may be parts of the church that don't experience the fullness of faith. Um, so like, I mean, obviously they'll, if, if an Eastern Orthodox priest were to wander into the Roman Catholic church and want to be a priest, I don't, I mean, they wouldn't require a reordination or saying, Hey, you know, you weren't really a priest to begin with. Right. They would just receive him now. Yeah. So I think there's a kind of special pleading that goes on there with Anglicans. Um, for, for a number of reasons, some of them political more than theological. So, yeah, I, I don't think we discount that. I, I, I call branch theory, ecclesial realism, because I think that we are the, I think branch theory or ecclesial realism is the most true to the facts on the ground. It may not be theoretically the best possible way for the church to exist, it would be better if we were one church, um, of course. But I also think that in spite of our unhappy divisions, as the prayer book calls them, God is still faithful to his people and he still gives us what we need. And hopefully, you know, that, that prayer that Jesus prays that we all may be one is realized uh, more and more. We just did an interview with someone who's a canon lawyer in the Roman Catholic Church, and we were talking about this, about how you know, some of these um, some of this happens at the grassroots more than it does at the institutional level, at least at first, you know. So, um, I mean, I mm. I often will go to confession at a Roman church and the priest doesn't have a problem with that. He knows who I am. Um, I will go. I, I did a mm. funeral somewhat recently with a with a Roman Catholic. The deceased had sort of one foot in both worlds and they wanted an Anglican presence there. So I did the Anglican burial right. And then the Roman priest did the Roman Requiem Mass. And when it came time for communion, I was invited not only to receive communion, but actually to receive the priest host. Um, So the point is, I think that Mm. that that you find this on the Internet a lot. And there are certainly Roman Catholics who do believe this, uh, you know, outside of that, who, who, who wouldn't love the idea of, you know, an Anglican going to confession or receiving communion from them. But I do think on the ground level that this is this is important. And one thing that the that the canon lawyer mentioned to us was that. There is a kind of ecclesial reality in which someone like the Orthodox or the Anglicans exist in. So um, if there's a Vagante bishop, you know, who leaves Rome as a schismatic and starts ordaining, they will often say he's not the, the, they will say that the orders of those priests are invalid because there's no ecclesial reality in which they participate. They're just a schismatic group caused by one dude, Mm. you know? But with Anglicans, there is an right. ecclesial reality—the Church of England, the the historic English, you know, faith right. is a thing, and the Orthodox orthodoxy is a thing, you know. And so the recognition of that fact, yeah, is I think kind of telling that that we're actually headed in the right direction when we start embracing something like branch theory or ecclesial realism, not because it's good, but because it is. And I, once we realize that or recognize that, then we can move forward in terms of solutions, which is why, like, I I mean, a solution for me is not, Hey, come join our things and get ordained again because you were never really ordained to begin with. It's just a non-starter, right? I mean, for some people, I guess it it worked out, but, um, that's not, that's not going to actually move the conversation Mm. further.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. So obviously within Anglo-Catholicism and actually pretty pretty broadly within Anglicanism. I, I know the Jerusalem Declaration, or not the Jerusalem Declaration, but the ACNA foundational document states the necessity of bishops as an integral part of the fullness of the Catholic Church. The affirmation of St. Louis obviously includes uh, the Episcopate as being an essential part of, of the church. So, As we think about this idea that the church is kind of broken up into branches, and obviously it's not ideal, but this ecclesial realism, what do we do with these reformational churches, Protestant churches that have either willfully abandoned uh, the episcopate or have by circumstance moved away from it? Um, No bishop, no church, or Um, is it more nuanced? Generally,
1: the, the principle is true no bishop, no church. That doesn't mean that the people in those communities are bereft of all grace or or are somehow not Christians. It, it, it you know, I think about it in terms of levels of participation, uh, you know, so it's good to be a Catholic Christian. Yeah. It's, that's that you're nearing the fullness of faith when you're receiving the sacraments, when you have a bishop who's validly ordained in apostolic succession. Those are good. when you depart from those visible structures that God has ordained and given to us as, as the means of grace, grace becomes a little bit more tricky, right? It's, it's like, well, is it, I don't know, you know, what, what happens when Baptists do communion? I have no idea. It's above my pay grade, but I really hope that they get whatever it is that they need. And so again, it's a, it's, 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 you don't want to necessarily make a, a a judgment other than to say, this is what scripture and tradition teaches us, and we should be obedient to that, and that will cause us to flourish. And that doesn't mean that you can't get things you need elsewhere. It just means this is what God has ordained. And so, a, a you know, a Christian who's really convinced that right. the Episcopacy is not essential, or that, that the, you know, Substantial presence of Christ is not in the Eucharist. I mean, I don't know. I mean, they're, I think they're wrong, but I don't know that that means God has abandoned them. Um, there is a role of conscience and, you know, right. a kind of um, ignorance, you know, that 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 may kind of shield them from from that. And so we hope that, you know, everybody will. Will participate as best as they can, given what they have.
0: Sure sure yeah i think that's a good answer a fair answer um i've often said that um the protestant churches that lack episcopal authority um it's not that the pastors of these churches are not true ministers it's that they're lacking any sort of sacramental authority and because of that there's there's a there's a lack of assurance that comes along with with any sort of sacramental efficacy not necessarily saying it's invalid <laughs> but just saying that the, the sacramental authority is is not present and therefore the assurance can't be as yeah as well. I had lunch
1: with a with um, an evangelical pastor in our area recently and you know I love talking to him and he does great things when it comes to ministry, you know, and I, I don't I don't doubt that God uses him for good. But yeah, as as far as whether I would call that a church, you know, it's like, well what does that mean to be a church? Um and I think communion with a bishop And apostolic succession is an essential uh, definition of what a church is. Again, not saying that 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 people can't receive grace in ways through what they're doing. It just, you know, and and, and I think that lets that lets me respect them. You know, it's like, hey, we obviously disagree on this, but I can respect what you do. As much as I can anyways, right. And so and I can pray for them and their ministries. And I know that in some ways what they're doing is really good for my community, even though it may not be the fullest participation. It's still good. It's better. I'd rather someone go there than not go anywhere else at all, you know?
0: Right, right. Well, yeah, even just on like an experiential level, you know, I was raised evangelical. You said you were raised evangelical. That's where I met Jesus, you know, like that's where I became a Christian. And so God forbid that I disdain the past um, where I met him and, and just write them off as there's nothing going on there. Um, that would just be, um, not dealing rightly with the clear fruit that's being born there that God's using. Um, Right. Exactly. So, uh, let's move to the, the closing, the closing question that I have, which is just kind of a fun question I like to ask at the end. Uh, who has been the most like influential church fathers or theologians in your life?
1: Yeah, this is a tough question for sure, but I, I will, I will do my best and I'll split it. I'll give you two patristics and I'll give you two medievals and then one modern. I think that proportionality is good. You know, the, the, okay. the, the older, the better, you know? Um, so I have to say Athanasius because that's part of how I became Anglican um, is, is reading on the incarnation and, and some of his mm-hmm. other writings. And of course his role in bringing about the creed and everything. I mean, it's also important. So Athanasius is definitely up there. A second for me is Origen, whose preaching and interpretation of scripture mm. is mind-blowingly beautiful. I took a class on Origen with John Baer at the mm. House, and I'm, I still remember the line. He said that before Origen, everyone was playing soccer. And then Origen picked up the ball and started playing rugby, and we've all been playing rugby ever since. Um, That there is uh, there is no (laughs) creed without origin, you know, his influence over the Cappadocians is so important. Mm. But even just the way that he approaches and engages the scriptures, there's a robust kind of critical approach that he takes. He also is willing to consult Jewish interpretations of scripture as well on the literal level. But then this idea that that the allegorical and tropological and anagogical are, are very present in the text is really important. And so I, I absolutely love him. I mean, his homilies on Joshua are just amazing. And Exodus, uh, oh, so good. So good. So Athanasius origin third, mm. I have to say Anselm um, who I love. I mean, the ontological argument is I think often misunderstood. I always see it more as a as a mystical encounter than an actual argument for God's existence. I don't even think it's really a persuasive argument for God's existence for to a non-Christian, but I do think that it's, it's a really beautiful um, way. I mean, when you start to conceive of God as that, which nothing greater can be conceived, then it starts to break all of the boxes, the idolatrous boxes that we put him in and becomes the ground for a lot of Anselm's other theology. So like at the end of Curtis Homo, where he talks about why did God become man He concludes with that this is a this is a love, a mercy, a grace of which nothing greater can be conceived, you know, so it's it's it plugs into other parts of his Mm. theology. Mary, he says, is uh, holy. Her holiness is besides the creator's holiness, you know, that which nothing greater can be conceived Uh, as well. So anyways, I think Anselm's awesome. Hmm. And I, I think there's a kind of dearth of literature on him too, which is really sad. I mean, we pay a lot of attention to the ontological argument, but there's so much else there in his writings. So him, and then somebody else I mentioned earlier, who I did my thesis on, Hugh of St. Victor, there in Bonaventure, he has this section where he compares medieval theologians to patristic theologians, like, oh, so-and-so is really good at moral theology, like, this patristic figure and so and so is really good at systematic theology like this patristic figure hmm. and then at the end he after listing like four or five medieval theologians he goes and Hugh of Saint Victor w- excelled at all of these things um so he is he is kind of the most well-rounded guy i think he wrote the Didascalicon, which is about classical christian education or what we would now call classical christian education um it's a whole curriculum Interesting. Um, he has de sacramentis which is a summa um, kind of pre-Thomas Aquinas Summa, but it's still a Summa, it's a systematic theology that's really impressive. And then he has th- these this treatise on the on Noah's Ark, which is a spiritual writing, mystical writing, and it's amazing. I mean, the what he does with the Ark is so mm. cool. So Hugh has been someone who I've just loved studying and I'm glad to be done with my thesis, but I'm I I do still love reading Hugh and 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 seeing how he worked things out he was just a brilliant mind and i think someone who i'd never heard of until mm. i was doing my third degree and i'm sad it took me that long <laughs> to figure out who he was so those are my two patristics wow. and my two medievals my modern i'm gonna say someone who you said already which is dr hans borsma um he was my thesis advisor at Noshoda.
0: Mm-hmm. i did
1: two degrees before this in biblical studies oh wow and then i took his class on lexio divina and a class on uh, called five things every theologian wishes biblical scholars knew which became a book that he wrote and right i he was able to articulate things that i think i had felt but couldn't put words to while i was in biblical studies like it took me years to be able to read scripture devotionally again because you're taught to dissect the text you know use Mm, historical mm -hmm. apparatus, which are good in and of themselves. I'm not against like the critical study of scripture. It's just the mode in which you approach things as a biblical scholar is so, um, mm, I don't know, insufficient on its own. And so I, I, yeah, I had a real problem figuring out what to do about that. And uh, and so then I took his classes and it really changed. I, I told him recently we interviewed him for the sacramentalist. And I said something like, you know, you changed my life. Um,
0: it was a great. Episode, oh, thank by you. The thank way. you. Yeah, I
1: think I said I it something it. like you changed my life because I was going on this trajectory and thought, oh, I'll just keep doing biblical studies stuff. But now I can't. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm happy or sad about that, but mostly Oof. I'm happy because I think the way that he taught us to engage the scriptures in those classes was is so much more life giving than what I had been taught to do, um, through Mm. biblical studies. So, yeah, so those are my, those are my five. Hopefully that's, uh, not too long of a list. (laughs) Yeah,
0: no, no, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And on Borsma, I just finished his book, Pierced by Love and it, oh man, the same kind of thing, you know, I growing up evangelical and going to Moody Bible Institute, it is a very academic approach to scripture. And this was just like, putting on brand new glasses and seeing the scriptures again for the first time. So uh, yeah, powerful yes, stuff. Absolutely. It's a great book. I, yeah. I In fact, I loaned my copy out to one of our college yeah.
1: students at my parish because I read it. I was like, this is so good. You have to read it. So,
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming on. This has been a, a really edifying discussion. I hope others find it to be edifying as well. And um, absolutely. Well, yeah. thank you and thank bless you, you and, and keep you.
1: up the good work.